This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com slash c-suite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey all, my apologies for the delay on this week. I've been severely ill since last Thursday, and I'm still finding it difficult to breathe, much less speak. Today's episode comes from a world-building series on how to create a space in which you can create, without fear of what might change or persist, that we ran for our patrons earlier this year. You'll probably recognize the first two voices you hear as the neuroscientist Nick Lorre and my co-host Dave Herman. They did such a wonderful job of explaining the premise on which everything else proceeds, namely, what if the world evolved to fit man instead, that we decided right from there to see what else could happen. We hope you enjoy. The original topic of my PhD was environmental programming. Now, what environmental programming, the idea behind environmental programming was that you know, imagine you have a Darwinian system, okay? You have, you, have, you have beings evolving Darwinistically, okay? What if you, instead of program the beings, you program the environment so that the beings become something? Which is essentially what's happening in this case. You've got a- Exactly. You've got a sort of a random function that's uh, producing, that, that is dreams in this case, but you can influence the input to it. If you see brains, brains, your neurons are Darwinistically evolving, even inside your head. That's what learning is. Learning is Darwinian evolution inside your own head, in that sense that some neurons live, other neurons die. Those who have the greater connection survive. Those who don't have so many friends die. So there is a Darwinian evolution. This is this is not crazy neuro. This is standard neuroscience. Right, knowledge. right, right. And uh, 
And so, so you have you have these Darwinian uh, neurons and, and uh, evolution of neurons. And neurons are what are creating dreams. So if you change the environment of the dreams, you will condition the dynamic evolution of the neurons and you will create new dreams. So it's environmental programming in a way, but it's in dreamland. So it's environmental programming in dreamland instead of computers. This is how I make the bridge. This is why I think it's so important to do these kinds of exercises because it's so easy to fall into the belief or even the trap, I suppose, that you are the authority on a story you create, fictional or not, and that all of who you are limits what can be made by you. When the reality is, and so I think Nick, I'd mentioned this before, and Dave, I'll throw this out to you too. I got into a bit of a conversation with a fellow writer on Facebook. They were going against the idea that, or felt it was too deeply romantic that your characters tell the story for you. And I thought for a moment about why that irritated me. What I came to was, it seems immensely strange that we can conceive that, you know, Newton can conceive of the moon as a physical object that moves alongside the earth, what is also pulled down by it, but moves at such a rate that it doesn't fall. That Einstein can contemplate how light bends and shapes our perception of reality, but that I, an individual writer, cannot conceive of a person, fictional or not, with autonomy. Right, that our imagination is powerful enough to imagine a being outside of us that has its own ways of existing in a world that is its own world, that has its own environmental rules and dynamics and truths. I'll tell you a, a cool concept. When I was living in Holland, I was living in Utrecht, I was doing an Erasmus um, scholarship. And uh, so I was watching this movie, this series they had. And um, I was really, um, you see, the greatest poet for many people, the greatest poet of Portugal is Fernando Pessoa, for many people. Uh, I don't know if, David, I don't know if you're familiar with Fernando Pessoa, but- I am not, if, unfortunately. Yeah, so Fernando Pessoa is a very interesting character. He, the original poems, these original texts are written in English because he actually grew up in South Africa. He's from Portuguese families, but he, he, he had family in South Africa, so he grew up in South Africa. So he, his original learnings uh, were, in English schools, and then he moved on with uh, with his family to Lisbon, and and he worked as a translator and as a, um, as a check balance, the guy that checks the balances of the books, you know. But he wrote poetry and he wrote great poetry. Now, one of the things that he's really known for is alter egos. So he wrote in different styles with different political beliefs, or people born in different places. Which and and so he has like five or six or more characters, but five are the most famous ones. So he wrote almost nothing with the name Fernando Pessoa, but but he always wrote with different alter egos. Some of them are closer to him than others, but most of them are completely radically different. And there's even even letters that he made up of one guy saying how how, how foolish the other guy was. <laughs> <laughs> and so. So the, the thing is that, and the reason why I think that, and so he inspired me when I did work in neuroscience, you know, if there's something that is kind of my idea, though it basically is built on other people's ideas, was this, that I joined two concepts, one from Damasio and the other one from Ekman. Ekman was a neuroscientist, psychologist, which, yeah, that's a series about this guy, which was light to me. Have you seen the series, Lie to Me? I, I think I saw the first couple of episodes. 
Yeah, so this is based on the, this is actually based on an actual psychiatrist that did neuroscience. And, uh, and so, and so he has about micro reflections, micro reflections, and and now and, and now if you're telling the truth, or not. wasn't this briefly covered at like uh, the the this guy co briefly covered in the book uh, Blink? It wasn't the major point of the book, but he was in, they talked about it. Gladwell interviewed him, and they watched footage of Bill Clinton, and from watching yeah. the footage of Bill Clinton, he said this man doesn't want to avoid being caught. He wants to be caught because the fun for him is getting out of trouble. <laughs> and he assessed that from the micro-expressions, just there's a certain, it was during the testimony of the Lewinsky trial, he watched the little, you know, it wasn't a smirk, but I forget the exact terminology, but there was a look on the face, a bit of a twer you know, tweak in the, the cheek or in the eyebrow that said, that's it. he's enjoying this. He's in trouble, but that's the joy of it, that he's so smart in his mind that the challenge... That he can get away with it. And so, so what I joined the work of this, and so what I did is that I basically built a matrix, okay, which is the matrix of, of social emotions. That is, it has there is four columns, which is the one positive emotion, say happiness, and there are three types of negative emotions. And this is known from, from neuroscience, which is joy, anger, sadness, and fear. So these are the four pillars of emotion. Now one thing, other thing you can do is that you can think of different ways of considering yourself, your ego, okay? Now, your ego is, as this is the Masu's work. So you can start from the stomach, okay? Stomach. That's the basics of your body self perception. Then you have your full body, your skeleton, okay? Then there's yourself as a part of a family. Then there's yourself as a part of the universe, and then there's the self as a part of the universe, okay? The problem that you have is that those different levels of self might have different agendas. My stomach's not generally going to care about, uh, about um, family dynamics. <laughs> Outside of dinner time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, so you have these levels, and also you have, say, you can have a, a level which says, well, what I really care is about community. You know, it's really about, uh, about protecting the uh, social justice, helping the needy. Or you can have, and, and sex is very associated with the stomach, with the fact with the act of eating, with the concept of eating. And so it's very, and, and so you can say, oh, all I want is satisfy my immediate needs, okay? And, and and we're just talking about, you know, of a possible situation where the two enter in conflict, right? Mm. And so what, what you built is this, well, this, you have this level, and then you have this acting, like the method acting, which you, Jared, you're probably, you know, well aware of this. You know, you have the method acting where you, when I did acting, I was, I was trying to get into this, this persona, like I was trying to become this persona. And actually, that's a very, that's a fantastic feeling because it, it increases your awareness of how much you can, you could have been a completely different person with completely different ethics, with completely different principles, with completely different ways of looking at the world. And that's how, this is how your characters, Jared, and your characters, David, if you, if you know how to make them. Yeah, you're stripping out your a priori assumptions and letting others take place. Yeah, then you let others take place. And the genius of that is in my book, Shakespeare. 
And Shakespeare is such a genius on that, that no one really knows who Shakespeare is. He makes himself so invisible that we don't know his personality, his character, what he liked, what he preferred, what are his choices, because it is impossible to figure out what is his political stance. In a way, he couldn't exist now. From what his characters do. You, right. you, you don't know if he loves more the crooked criminal or the generous loving person. You can't. And that's the genius of Shakespeare, because he creates characters. He doesn't create messages. That's my opinion. It creates characters or people. I, I want to kind of dovetail this into what we were working on for the last two episodes so that we can make this nice, clean content. Dave, I don't know how much you told Nick of what we had come up with so far. I barely remember half of it myself. Well, we had got, okay. I, well, I had the advantage of uh, having pulled it up and listened to it today. So... <laughs> I'm glad one of us did. So the, re the reason I bring it up is that we are basically, as Dave was saying, creating a world from random choice of this is the thing we're going to build this time. And one of the monkey wrenches we threw out early on was that there's this invasive force that is trying to cull color, but it's more than color. It's some sentiment or existence or a thing needed to express. And it comes from dreams. Yeah, and it comes from dreams. And that on some level, people exist in realities that are not fully, a, they're not the full reality. Each of these is kind of like there's a little garden or environment in which to harvest a certain color or tone or sensation. Whether they are in there with other people or these are individual, like they're individually being tailored, that would have been too much about defining what the, the world was like, the kingdom. So we didn't, we didn't do it. Outside of knowing that these group exist, that they create a reality in which to harvest colors or sensations, and that they're trying to build something that can only be expressed with them. That's what we established so far. We know they are. We also we also do know that they are some kind of strange figure. They are tapping into this same power to get around, but they have to play by the rules of it as well. So they kind of ride dream logic. Right. So in any world they've been they're in, they have to live by the environment they enter. They can't per se be fully what they are in the environment. I was thinking about technologies. Uh, just a small commentary. If you have the technology to penetrate a dream and program its environment so that the dream changes, you also have the technology for people to communicate while conscious uh, so that you have kind of an internet of the brain so that you can link from people to people. Uh, and if you have that, then, then you can have the idea that the, the moving into the dream world was a cultural choice so that once you conquer and you become a single mind, okay? And you can have other minds, then the culture can choose to either live in the consciousness or in, the, or in dreamland. And there's this culture diffusivity. So that's my idea, sorry. Hmm. Well, what the thing I did roll for this one was the kingdom. So this is a good uh, time to start uh, defining the world. Uh, before we go too far down that path, I'll get, go, go with what happened in the other one, which is that we rolled the swerve. And the swerve that, that we came up with was that there was something, in addition to them mining something real, something colorful out of these dreams, there was an existence hidden in, the, in people's dreams itself that is both already existent and not fully defined. And that whoever is doing this harvesting is, or like whoever is in the know that is doing this harvesting is trying to control how it 
presents, how it instantiates. So in a sense, each world, dream world, has its own little animus mundi that might have existed prior to this mechanism being what it is. I think we came up with the sleeper that does, like the, the names, the, the sleeper the, the, that doesn't dream and the dreamer that doesn't sleep. And they may be the same person, but they're hidden within these dreams. The sleeper, the sleeper who is, I didn't understand this, the sleeper who is awake. I... The sleeper that does not dream and the dreamer that does not sleep. We just like the paradoxical nature of these two names. We aren't at, at the moment sure what they mean yet. Well, for the second one, that's a state of enlightenment in Buddhism and in other meditating te techniques. I've tried doing that and I managed to do that a couple of times, which is dreaming a, a fully conscious dream. Like you dream without and you're totally in control. Like lucid dreaming. So what that suggests is that. So, so look at this. Lucid. So that's like a, a, a person that is permanently capable of lucid dreaming. So what this suggests are two different states or two of a few different states for the same being that it can be among other things a sleeper that doesn't dream as nick was saying fully awakened and in control of how it shapes things or a dreamer that doesn't sleep as in just a part of the dream that isn't aware it's even dreaming it also sounds like the dreamer does not sleep since it's meditative since it's a waking dream is one that's not actually hidden within the dreams it's hidden within re within reality, and then the 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 um, the sleeper that does not dream is the one that's hidden, like within the the dream world. And the two are separate parts of the same thing that have not met up yet. True, they could be different parts of the same self as well. So what you're arguing is that they could, with the same being that persists and provides the dream place, could both be aware of it and unaware of it. Mm -hmm. So aware and in control and also be a being that is sleeping but not aware that is dreaming. Are you aware of the of the Marvel character, the Sentry? Yes. I remember reading the original line of that one. It was a very interesting one because you're not entirely certain for most of it if the, the, the character actually has the powers he thinks he does or if he's just deluding himself. Absolutely. And, and then you and then you eventually figure out that he's both the hero and the villain mm -hmm. and that and that he decided he's so powerful that he decided to amnize himself so so he made an effort to to lose his memory so that he did not know he was a hero because the moment he becomes a hero his alter ego the void also appears and destroys the world hmm. so I wonder then if playing off your notion that people voluntarily adopted this technology. There was, there was a decision at some point to have emerged consciousness and to, decide, and to either remain within the conscious aspect of that or to fully submerge into the dream, right? So there are, among those who decided to join into this meld of a source, there are those who decide to stay within the aware part. And those might be the active agents, the ones that dive in to harvest colors for some purpose. And there might be those who have decided to reside within the dreams and just be a part of that surreal environment because that is where they find their peace or their joy or whatever they seek. And they might even have been the same people at one point in time, but this has persisted long enough that there is some kind of veil or barrier or divide. So they chose this willingly, but they probably don't remember that they chose this willingly anymore. Because they might not, they might not even be an individual being, but like in crossing that threshold or whatever 
means or method is necessary. We know the agents can't be all of what they were inside a constructed or created dream world, right? So it stands to reason that the act of passing that through that barrier, you have to leave something behind. Well, one of the things that, that, that that's making me think, and Nick, you said something earlier about, you know, being able to imagine who you might have been as a, a different person earlier, putting together that, that, that self-model, Im- imagining another identity within yourself. It could be that all of the people within the dreams and probably the people who are going to be the player characters are themselves dreams. They, they are fully realized identities, but they are dreams of someone else. And so they're... So here you go. Existence. The difference between those who are aware and those who are not. Those who are aware still have the tether. They're like the... Uh, oh, Nick, we were talking about this during the last episode we did. The the clay people, the kiln people. The so kiln people. Kiln people. You're sending, your, you're sending your imagined selves in to, exa- to dig through the dream world. But the difference between the active... The aware people is that they know those selves are portions or imagined versions of themselves that all connect back to one on the other side. The dreamers are just the imagined selves going and being selves. To your point, going in this. Now imagine this, speaking the technology side. Imagine that a group of people decide to merge in their dreams. Now there are some who know that the basis of their dreams is this biological entity called the body. And so that that dreams are just dreams and they're not real. But now imagine the autonomy of dreams, that through the networking, the dreams have spread themselves within the network of the wireless connection or connector. Okay. So your your imagined self could exist in multiple dreams as that imagined self that is unique right. in itself, a self. And so now the self of the dream, which exists in the say the web, okay, sure, a, a better web, a quantum web, whatever, a better web, but on the web, looks at the selves associated to biological entities and finds them poor, diminished, horrified, diminished, primitive. One of the thoughts that had occurred to me was that those people who d- were not aware that they were imagined, well, when someone knows that they like when someone is a projection of another real self and they know it and the projection, I mean, and the real self is in charge, they're going to limit how much that projection can grow. It's always going to be in service to the one to the um, the the mind that created it. But the ones that don't know grow beyond they don't have those same limitations. They grow beyond that without intending to. They're more real. Here's the easiest limitation, and here's why they're more real. Nick, in the killing people, you said part of the joy was that you could create, you could be a person for a day, right? You could create an existence. So I think part of what happened, part of the limitation here is that the imagined, those selves that are imagined by the people that are aware have points of termination where they will cease to exist. They might be time, they might be conceptual, but something can occur that ends them. Well, what if some of them overcome that? And therefore are liberated, right? They're free, they become a full self. Because what if, what if a character, what if I create a character, a character say, Alizofia from the, from, the, from the story, you know, so well. Sure. Alizofia, and she's brilliant and interesting and, and dynamic but contradictory because she wants to believe but not believe and and she has joyful thoughts and depressive thoughts what if someone that is dreaming with me falls in love with this character or wants this character to enter 
his dream. Oh, so a second person opens up that dream space for this character. And then the character moves. And then another person also feels that. And so there's now there is this character that is spread through the dreams of thousands, of millions, of billions of people. Okay? And now this character that is spread on the on the on the neural networks of each person, but is being communicated. What if this character gains autonomy? In a sense, there's there's a gravity, there's an actual mass and a gravity resulting from that to these connections. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing about this this type of character that, that hits me is this character doesn't spread like some of the others we've talked about. It's not a character that's just moving about wherever. This character spreads through the imprint that they place on other minds. They spread through negative space. They, they, they spread through the, the, the mold that they, the, and the impression that they leave. And then that impression is filled. Um, so you realize the most accurate word for that is in fact an avatar, right? Yeah. Right. And I don't just mean in the digital sense. I mean, in the manifestation of. It, it would be like a fully realized person emerging from the footprints left in the mud. Yeah. An avatar is, an, is a manifestation of the divine being which someone who has left an imprint on everyone within the known world would be. Because, but then every single person would be the avatar of Alizofia. Would be influenced or touched by them and, until perhaps maybe there is in fact a critical mass where they do all become an avatar of Alizofia because the imprint is so much stronger than whatever their limited self was. So either you become individuated enough to be free of that imprint or you succumb to it. Or you succumb to it. So here's my two questions. How many of these how many of these avatars are there and are they all apparently human or are some of them more conceptual like ideas things? They could they could be a squirrel, they could be a cube. I meant more like a kingdom or a political ideology or a um that kind of thing. Well, I have to tell you from what I know of neuroscientists of neuroscience we have a conscious that is very built on our bodies. That is, our ideologies exist as projected to our bodies. That's why, for instance, we talk about when we feel proud, we, we, straight, we, we straighten our, our backs. We, we talk about a society that is going up. We talk, uh, so there is this, this physicality that, that we embody. So I think that we have a tendency, of course, when I say a cube, a cube or a pyramid, um, it means that we, we can abstract this symbol. But being with such visual characters, human beings, mm -hmm. I think we, we always have to put an image to the concept. You know, the concept of justice is, is, a, is, a, is a scale. The concept of, of evil is a bloodied knife. Mm -hmm. you know, it's so funny. I was talking with your brother, Stephen, the other day for another episode. And one of the things we discussed was in the absence of language, how do we communicate what has been? If there's such a gap in time that only symbols remain behind, what do we use to convey things were and what do people interpret out of that? So it's possible, yes, that the avatars might have had certain imprints or meanings, but even those are lost depending on how long they've been and been and supplanted or replaced by whatever people presume them to be. There's so there's that. There's also my question of how would you be able to differentiate an AI, you know, an artificial intelligence generated in the system versus a self that was a manifestation from a dreamer? 
past a certain point, how do you discern? Right. Well, you don't. I have a friend of mine who is a great scientist, a neuroscientist, and he did some work with the Brazilian that is world famous. And uh, what they did was they did something very similar, very simple. They had mice. The mice was in a maze and the mice learned the maze. Okay. And then they connected the wires. They put a wire in the brain, in the mice's brain. They, they connected to the internet and they linked it to the brain to a mice that was in a different city. And they put the mice, which has never been in the maze, in that maze. And they navigated it. And the mice did it the first time around. Well, what does this mean? This means that this kind of, if, if you have this network of brains and you, and you communicate and you link, what you have, you have a, you have a computer of, human, of brains. The quantum computer. You have a computation system of brains. Mm -hmm. And now the question is, if you have a computation system of brains and you have a character, say Alizofia, uh, and, uh, and this character exists and you have another one, which is, I don't know, Mr. Cube, okay, Mr. Cube, uh, which also exists. The question is, if it exists, if it is interesting to a lot of brains, if the character, the entity is interesting to a lot of brains, okay, then it starts existing in a lot of brains. But then it starts building a network, okay? So what happens to the cube in Jared's brain or what happens to the cube in Nicholas's brain, what happens to the cube on David's brain, they stop being independent. They interact. So when we move into the maze of life, we are no longer being independent in our way of acting on the maze. And also the character gains a certain weight. Well, I think today's earlier point you're all acting on that same imprint that same imprint of an avatar that has influenced and mm -hmm. left a memory a shared memory right it is normalized by the connection right say for example indiana jones yep okay everybody we everybody knows indiana jones right so when you look at the whip that kind of whip a lot of people in the universe think indiana jones now if you put the a whip and the hat about 80% of the world says Indiana Jones. Now, it's just a whip and a hat, but we have structured a symbolic character that is invoked by this, which is called the, the twin neurons, the, twin, the, the mirror neurons. The mirror neurons, there's a lot of discussion about mirror neurons, but what basically mirror neurons are, they are integrating centers that associated to a certain symbol, say a certain person like Brad Pitt, Okay, they they are linked and they're paying attention to all sorts of um, of stimuli that are associated to Brad Pitt. So they're aggregators. Mm -hmm. They are aggregators. Which kind of, in a way, gets back to the idea of the animus mundi here—the thing that keeps an individual dream world in one thing. There might have been a seed, Brad Pitt, whatever, 
that is the notion that fed it, but it starts to draw more and more through this connection of stimuli that reify and reinforce whatever that core concept is until it becomes definitive, right? Right. And so so the question is then, you know, it started, you know, in the original concept, you have the people that knew this was just a dream and those who believed in the dream. But now if the dreams become autonomous and they enter the web, who is right? Those who say a dream is just a dream or those who say the dream is the real source of the reality? Which leads us back to the question of they're harvesting some essential essence that we see as color because we're visual, embodied mm-hmm. creatures. But what is it they're actually collecting from that? And what is being made or expressed through what they take? And let's... Because we see it as color. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, and let's choose like uh, a... Um, let's say there are multiple of these junctures, these um, gra- these these centers of mass that uh, the, the, these accumulators... But let's choose one of them that that a lot of people have gravitated towards. It is some world. It is some vision that they share, that the life that they have around it. We know from the first episode that that, that these people are being manipulated for the harvesting of one thing. What is one of these? What could one of these look like? Like I I have an idea. See, See if you like it. All right. Archetype farmers. So they are generating concepts for use elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if so, what is this particular one dedicated to trying to farm? What kinds of archetypes? It could be anything, but it probably has, is, is some specific things. It probably lends itself to certain things more than others. We've just made Animal Crossing. I hope not. <laughs> uh, what? We just made what? We just made Animal Crossing, where you make, you turn into little animal people and collect stuff on your island. To, effectively, that is archetypal farming because what you are. Uh, so I think this is perhaps I'm playing off of what Nick said here. It's not so much what specifically they're farming, but that they're engaged in the archetype of farming. Mm, okay. So it's the it's right. the it's not the harvest that matters. It's the act of harvesting. Right. That they're in, they're in this constant cycle of reap and sow and reap and sow and whatever comes out of that might change or is incidental, but the act right. itself of being cyclical of reaping and harvesting of perpetuating the system, all that generates. It, it's like the farming culture. You plant you plant wheat or corn or cocaine or whatever you want to crop. Cocaine corn. Cocaine corn. Okay, but what 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 is the difference? is the culture of farming you know it's it's the attitude you know you have to re- you have to water the plants you have to pay attention and one of the things that i find fascinating is if you look at cocaine farmers or wheat farmers or corn farmers they have the same culture they go they water the plant they watch the plant grow they 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 cut the leaves of the plant and, and and they and they and they build this relationship with the plant. In one case, it's illegal. The other case is legal. In one case, it's good for people. The other case is bad for people. But I'm just I'm just opening the the spectrum so that it is the culture of farming. It's some essence from that, something from that that we'd see as a color or of certain colors. But that that vit- that diligence, that cyclical nature, whatever it is. Yeah, timing, calendars, all of that kind of thing, all descend from farming. Yeah. Look at Cahokia and the whole failed enterprise there as they tried to create a calendar that would allow them to build an agricultural system, but didn't it didn't satisfy their needs as well as their other structures had. 
Right. So yeah, there's a there's a certain sense of regularity, of diligence, of persistence that is fundamental or essential. And all of these are probably not the the thing, the seed that the you know that that which all of this has germinated from, but there are notions or concepts around that are kind of grew out of the the initial germ. And I wonder then, is this has this become did this emerge naturally or was it planted? Let's ask that. I think it started emerging naturally, but I think it has been cultivated for a while because we already established that the threat is cultivating to harvest certain things. So that part has to be true, but I don't think it has to have been the origin point. So there might have been things other than farming here at some point, but farming dominates. It's all. But being a dream or having something to do with dreams, that element of reaping and sowing is going to be embedded in all aspects of life around this area. That includes even people who would be a little more distant, even roles that would be a little more distant. You know, you talk about how like the the culture for the farmer is always the same, but the, you know, like the tax man is also going to think that way. There's a chapter in The Once and Future King during one of the harvests. It's one of the earlier chapters, I think, during the the first arc that became Sword in the Stone, where during the reaping and sowing, everybody rolls up their sleeves, from Lord down to the lowest peasant, from old to young. Nobody is divorced from the act of the harvest, Mm -hmm. from the preservation and the transportation so it's this it's this unifying act, but everyone engages in it. It's ritual, it's symbolic, but I think it's again the even the the celebration itself, the act of it of engaging in that, is the thing that generates the essence they're extracting here. And it might be incidental what people come here to celebrate a harvest for, and that might be one of the weirdnesses that every year or every cycle something else grows, but the mm-hmm. people there don't even notice. In fact, chances are what you what you sow is not what you reap in this world. Which is a weird twist on causality, but again, that's not the the cons, the result isn't what matters; it's the act. Mm-hmm. Causality. You see, I studied a little bit of Darwinism. Darwinism has has three components. It has a deterministic component, which is in case for instance, genetic transmission, which is a deterministic component. It has a natural selection component, which is the ones which are which gather the most resources, have a higher chance of survival. But then also it has a a beauty evolution or a pattern evolution, where basically the capacity to transmit symbols between different elements of the species also is a factor of survival. So in this case of the dreams, applying the same Darwinian principle to dreams, what you have is that you have a certain deterministic aspect, which is the the bodies of each person, you know, the cultures of each person, which cloud, which, which color the character or the entity. Then you have natural selection, which is the capacity a certain archetype has of gathering resources. But even then, that is not enough because it must create a pattern, a, a symbolic, a common symbolic representation. A why? That allows it, that enables him to transcend the world of dreams and enter different realities. So if you have a code. Because that enables him to maintain self. This is right. who I am. This is my identity. I'm still a farmer, even if I go into techno utopia. Right. And so, so, so now, now you have this symbolic, but I'm thinking of, so the way I see your ideas that you're presenting, the way I'm seeing it is that now you have, you have people or being or beings 
that they've they have gained the capacity to have a technology that allows them to do what my friend does with the mice, okay, which connects them. And so now, now you can experience the other person's mental perspectives, mental representations. You don't have the person's body, but you have the same. So you have a joining at the level of mental representations. And the first in, in the history, first people try to do it consciously. And then people try to do it in their dreams to see what happens. And then they notice that when their dreams, then the dream, while, while consciousness is limited by the reality, so it's a little boring because it's basically the same for others. Once you enter into the world of dreams, the complexity, the complexity explodes, mm-hmm. okay? Because the arbitrariness of one person multiplies with the arbitrariness of others. And so in, the, in dreams, there's no reality that makes that, you know, Jared, Nicholas, and David, we all suffer gravity. Within the dream world, the most powerful selective force becomes the symbol. Beauty evolution. Because it's what allows you mm-hmm. to maintain distinctiveness. Because if you don't have that, you're just kind of free-floating in a fever dream. So that's the book I based this on. The Evolution of Beauty, yes. This is a book by this guy, Richard Prom, who is a biologist. Okay? So this is a, this is a book about Darwinism. Okay? So this is the, I used a lot, this is a New York Times 10 best books of the year when it was published. But it's really, it's scientific, but it's really great. And it does, it does a little bit, for instance, he talks a lot about birds, okay? He basically says, this pattern, for instance, this orange pattern has absolutely no natural selection advantage. It's like carrying, carrying a shoot me sign on your forehead. Eat me, shoot me, yeah. Yeah, okay. So why do they have it? Because it gives them advantage in symbolic representations. He is saying something to the females, okay? And so skin of the birds is a kind of symbolic representation. Before we could speak, we had this Italian thing where we speak a lot, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where we have gestures and, and speak. And we still have it, right? We still have it. It's not all cultures, but a lot of cultures have these gesture things. And the, and the science says we trust this more than this. Yes. Because it's, if someone says something, but the gesture says this, we trust the gesture. We don't yeah. care what the person is saying. So when you disembody people and there's only the communication, then you have either their imagined body to rely upon, which could be anything unless there's consistency to it. And that right. doesn't necessarily mean it's consistent with what's being communicated out of it. But if you have that unique identity that is bound up in symbols, its state remains consistent, then there's believability. Right. Then there's authenticity. What you have is, is beauty unconstrained by reality. Which will be surreal, will be eldritch, will be weird, because the needs for what it has to communicate, the pressure for what it was meant to communicate is removed. The body's already gone. There mm-hmm. can be other selves of you, and there probably are other selves of you if you even remember there's a you. Mm -hmm. Right, And and there's a tension for you. The more you let each of these individual selves have their own sense of concept, the weaker their tether is to you. Because the more weight, the more gravity, the more mass they possess. And that's just among the people who are, uh, you know, aware that they're, you know, dreaming. The the dreamers themselves have have no, the ones who have forgotten that they they were sent and imagined have no such limitation but it create but here's the here's the tension then while the dreamers fully immersed have no limits 
the more you wish to act within the dream, the more gravity and mass you have to have there, but the more tenuous your grasp back on that body is. If you develop an avatar, sure. say Alasophia again, and you start living in other beings, even if your body lasts 100 years and eventually is gone, have you died? The transcendentalist like Kurzweil would say no, because it's that body was never you, according to them. But of course, your argument is they wouldn't be who they are without the body. Well, there's that tension point, but there, the other tension point is if there's nothing anchoring them, if they are not like if they're not strong enough, then their own drift slowly like they have no real identity. They drift from one identity to another. It's only those that have developed enough inertia, as it were, to continue on, to continue making that imprint of themselves that continue somewhat. So there's kind of this overall push towards uh, or desire, um, at least among some, to maintain enough of an imprint that they exist, that they continue to last, that they... Right. Because that, David, that's a very good point, because I was thinking, for instance, of the Mayans, who liked a lot, you know, eating that, I think it was cocaine or something, they, uh, coca the leaves. leaves, yeah. Mm. Okay. Okay, that's great, because you live in the world where you're a god, and you're a demigod, and you're a, with, with the transcendental and all that, and you're semi-lunatic walking around, and that works until you get one group that is not a lunatic, and it kills all of you. <laughs> right? And, th and that's 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 the Darwin overtone, is that if you're thinking about this world of people, we have to think, how can they sustain themselves? This is, I think, the point of David. How can they sustain themselves without entering into decay and just dying in Never Never Land and, and just disappearing away? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil a little bit of a game that came out last year called uh, 13 Sentinels Aegis Room. It's a very weird metagame, meta but the basic gist is giant monsters come down from space and you have to go into big robots and fight them. That's the story the characters and you, the player, are told. And as you unravel the game, you start to realize that's all bullshit. And one of the big twists, which I'll spoil here, most of the main characters have nanomachines in them that preserve their memories for them because the machines they're in destroy those memories. So the nanomachines remind you bit by bit of who you are. But it's possible they've, they've either become their own identity or they've been hacked or in individual cases, or they never were you in the first place. So there's this trust of, oh, I'm downloading myself into storage that will then rebuild those networks and remind me of who I was so I can continue being myself. But there's no way to prove that's what they're doing. Right. So what I'm thinking, what I'm thinking is that a society where you only get away from dreamland if something bad happens. Like, but even if something bad happens, you see it from the dreamland perspective. You're saying, why are they? Oh, they're replacing that body. Oh, okay. And they carry the body, they put a different body, and you continue. Because what you need is a body. I think it's even possible that, let's say, Alizofia exists so much that the body attached to Alizofia, to your point, can just be rotated. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's the dominant identity now. Right. And then, and then that identity just occupies different bodies, and, and in the dream world, it conquers. So... It's a, it, 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 it's a parallel to Mr. Smith in The Matrix, okay? Sure. But it's, it's a different issue in the sense that Mr. Smith is a program, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's more like a, a, a mixture between Mr. Smith and the Merovingian, because the Merovingian was actually a person. We just created a weird version of Gattaca, 
because yeah, we did. of the question yeah. of where the bodies are coming from. Well, I think on that note, we have our kingdom. We have our our setting. That was surreal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like this. <laughs> you can invite me to do this kind of stuff a lot of times. I like this. <laughs> we we've been wanting to do more of these because the only way to learn how to get over what you think has to be is to right. lay out things that are and then figure out from there okay if these are true then what mm -hmm. and why and the easiest way to cast aside your expectations your desires everything you want a story to be is to work with a story that has no importance to you right right it's there's there's no burden of oh my god if i change that one underpinning the whole narrative collapses because it's 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 all make-believe, but in this case, the make-believe has no power. It's no loss to me if it goes a strange place. And that's safer, right? That's a safer space to work in for creatives, I find, than to initially practice by diving into their own works, where if I learn something new about a character, I'm terrified as to what that means about the world. <laughs> I speak both for myself and my students as well. One of the advantages of dreams is that it's a multi-path. You, David, you mentioned this a little bit ago, is that, you know, dreams are a little fuzzy, like, like, like you cannot grab them. And I think the reason for that is because they exist in different, in multiple branches. Mm -hmm. So what happens when your brain is deciding something is that you have multiple interpretations and then one of them wins and becomes an objective thought and say, okay, I'm going to do this. Okay. But dreams are kind of prior to that. You know, and they're impossible to represent in consciousness or they diffuse away in consciousness because I'll make a parallel to quantum mechanics. Okay, if you know quantum mechanics, it's easier, but mm -hmm. it's like dreams exist in a multitude of states. Okay. And then, but if you make a measurement, you converge in one of them, you, you force them to become one of them. So if, if Elizophia exists in the dream world, she'll exist not as one character with one reality, but as as a kind of multiple multiple worlds, like multiple philosophies existing in multiple realities. She'll exist as people's experiences of her. Yes, all the experiences. And even in a single person would have multiple experiences because that's how our brains does, okay? It has multiple experiences of what this can be. I said multiple instances of the same character. Yeah. Yeah. And so now you have this, this it's like this multiple paths, multiple possibilities interacting and so when people get into the dream world, they get fascinated because they don't have to choose. And it's very attractive because one of the things you do, there's a, there's a neuroscience study of, of Buddhist monks and they've discovered that they are the happiest people in the world. And then they studied Catholic nuns and they said, well, they are almost as happy as Buddhist monks. Mm -hmm. And what they realize is that it had to do with the way they perceive, the way they practice their mental processes and the way they they train their mental processes. And, and after studying this in a, in a short notice, I say the trick is galactic empathy, that the source of your unhappiness is that you cannot be all the things you would want to be. You cannot have, you cannot have children and not have children, be a physicist and a writer, be a, okay, be a man and a woman. And you cannot be all those things because reality constrains you. But through empathy and this galactic perception of empathy that we are all one being, we're all one soul, we're all one God, or we're all one something, then whatever the other people do, you empathize with that. 
Well, that's that's the joy from other people's joy. That isn't just I'm happy that you're happy, but I experienced this thing you love through your love of it. As your as your own. Yes. And that's the important part. It's not just that I I appreciate it, but I feel this. Yes. And and then your brain is no longer limited by the reality of a single life. Because through this empathy, even if you don't succeed in school, but you have someone that you've helped that succeeds in school, then through that success, your brain succeeds in school. That's uh, Rumi. Set my house on fire. I'm tired of living in it. This is the reason, David, you asked what was the beginning of the story. It started as a voluntary movement because by people making this connection, now they can fulfill all their dreams. So they have multiple realities through other people. So their, their brains would explode with happiness, even more than the Buddhist monks or the Catholic nuns. They would be megalopolis happy with this, with this connection. And so no one would want to, to drop this, okay? That's the why and behind the kingdom, why they would do it's this. The yes. why, it's the why behind the kingdom. And now everyone wants to do it. And now, but, but they know that if everybody's in the dream world, okay, who farms, who cooks, who, who feeds those bodies? Who keeps it running? Yeah, which actually, by the way, answers the question of what those people who are aware and projecting themselves in and trying to harvest are trying to do. They're trying to pull the original identities out. <laughs> which you have to do by the things, yes. I like That's this. That's a good twist. <laughs> That's a good twist. There we go. I like that. A good story can excite us. Yes, but the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.